So this is a little delicate, but I'm going to do it anyway and see how you feel. So on Resurrection Sunday, uh, we celebrated uh, Jesus's resurrection and raising from the dead by holding a community barbecue. The idea was that we put it out the front of the building and then uh, and, and in the past it's happened like passers-by and whatever else have become nosy and seen the barbecue and the free food and sort of been drawn in. So uh, that was the idea and so we set it out there f- front and um, it was a, a blazing hot day and we set it off and, and, and we cooked uh, lots and lots of stuff. Um, and it was really good because everyone here turned out. We had like uh, the whole congregation and then we had some visitors as well, like uh, various uh, uh, sort of different families uh, decided to see what this church was all about. And some just turned up for the barbecue, which was fine. Uh, I came out to it just after it got cooking and there was tension suddenly emerged. Various different people wanted the food distributed in different ways. Some came to me and said, the kids should come first. These poor little orphan children that have not had any food, they need to be at the front of the queue and they need to get the food first. Surely, Kevin, you don't want the young children to go hungry. Another one was like, we need the visitors. These people that don't know Jesus, they need the food first. Prioritise them, put them from the front of the queue, kick all the Christians to the back. One group thought... You know, this is a holy day. This is where Christians celebrate the resurrected Jesus. Surely it should be the Christians that get the food. They're the ones that have probably paid for it. They're the ones that have sort of sanctified this day with their lives. Um, And another one was like, my family have had it rough. I need to look after my immediate family. They're the ones that are going to go to the front of the queue and get their burger. And so um, as I, I made a very short walk and I came across a load of different groups that had these different ideas of how the food to be, should be distributed. And at each stage, I found it impossible to say, no, you're wrong. Someone else is right. All these different views, you could see why people were thinking like that. And each view had some merit to it. And so the question is, how do you stop this group of 50 people sort of breaking out in fistfights to properly give out the limited amount of food we had? How do you deal with all these different perspectives? Well, Peter says something um, Not exactly on barbecuing food, but um, he does something helpful. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Everyone say "Deeply." deeply. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. That's another illustration of daisies 
um, in connection uh, with God. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So Peter, in the previous 21 verses, has scaled some very impressive theological heights. I have loved some of the terms he's used. I've loved some of the thought processes he has led us through. Um, And there's all sorts of great reflections on the character and nature and activity of God. And we've also learned something about salvation, um, about the process by which we are saved. Peter exclaims that... As Christians pursue holiness in everyday life, they discover love. If we chase after holiness, part of holiness is love. And Peter uses a word um, that we may be familiar with, but in another context. He uses the word Philadelphia. Now, I realise it may be a, a city in America, but it conveys the idea of like brotherly and sisterly and kindred love and so he uses that here to say that um, as Christians chase holiness we develop and experience and enjoy brotherly and sisterly love however he doesn't want it to stop there he says that they have this love for one another But he says that there is a love that they are to move into and chase after and progress into. As they grow holier, he anticipates that they will um, enjoy agape love. And, And we've looked at that as a community before. This is a love that goes beyond just family affection into something more profound. It is a strong, deep, fervent love that captivates the whole person. Um, This progression and pattern that Peter brings out can be found in Paul's writings too. Have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ, do this more and more. So he recognises where the Thessalonians have reached, but he says there is more of that, that they are not to think that they have reached a level that is acceptable and that's all there is to it, but he expects always and continual progression for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus it is God's will that you should be sanctified and this is the everyday process of becoming holy this is everyday choices of not doing the evil stuff and choosing the good stuff And then he sort of spells it out, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject human, a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And then he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And he's saying the Holy Spirit's in you and he teaches you how to uh, love each other. You don't need another lecture on it. The Holy Spirit's in you to lead you in how to express yourself. The words you use and the words you don't use, uh, the activities you get up to and the activities you don't get up to. How do you love? And the Holy Spirit teaches you. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And Paul says, you've got the Holy Spirit, and he's teaching you the way of love, and that's really great. But never imagine you've hit your goal. That somehow you've reached holiness, and you've reached love, and that now everyone just needs to acknowledge how awesome you are. Instead, we get better at it. We ever refine this ability to love one another. We seek to do it more and more, to bring God pleasure by our behaviours, by our lifestyles, by our choices. Not by just coming to a Sunday morning meeting, but our entire lives, Monday through to Saturday. And this holiness is not, and you can be forgiven if this is your impression, it is not just all the things you are not to look at, not to touch, not to go near. That Christianity is a list of things that you are not allowed to do and you are left with a very thin um, uh, line of activities that is okay. The idea of sanctification and holiness and, and uh, um, pleasing God more and more is to look and touch more, to be more involved and hands-on in life. It seems it is good for us to know um, a greater love in us for other people, that it always increases, it always goes up. And this devotion means that we are further along in holiness. If you are really good at loving, it means you are, your holiness is more, that you are better at pleasing God and that the Holy Spirit is more active in your life. The better at loving you are, the more Holy Spirit is in you. The, the level of spiritual maturity is not how many words from God you hear up the front. We love to hear words uh, from God from people that come up the front. We love to have people leading worship. We love to have sermons. But that is not the level of spiritual maturity. It's how good we are at loving. Now, let me be clear. This agape love is not just smiling at one another. It's not just having a friendly chat. You know, you can do that with people um, of uh, any background. It's not just tolerating each other. 
Some of us may feel pretty smug that we can even do that. But when Peter and Paul in Scripture talk of love, they use a, uh, a descriptive word for agape love. That is the same word that caused Jesus to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. That is the level of intensity that Peter and Paul expects us to exhibit in love. It is a hard, visceral, costly thing. It takes all of our bodies. And for me, this is the one of the most captivating things about the Christian community. When we set up Elin Bubush, it was not, you know what, the world needs another, more, another worship service. The world needs another preacher, another set of podcasts, needs another worship crew, and uh, needs another tea and coffee rotor. I die inside every time that that is a summary of church. That is not what um, we're all about. And if that is your experience of church then you have barely scratched the surface. There should be a burning dedication to one another here that ensures that we empty ourselves of ourselves and make sure others feel valued and secured. In some ways, when we leave here, we should feel uh, no review of how we've done, but that exhaustion that comes with, I just wanted to bless everyone else. Now, I could quite easily, at this point, remind us of all the demonstrations of love we have enjoyed up to this point. So we've been going since 2005, and we've had 14 years of lots of different episodes of people demonstrating love. Um, I could tell you of the homeless people that we've accommodated. We've had them in our own house. We have had people that have got to the point of destitution and have enjoyed generous gifts, often anonymous, from other people in the church. We've had provision for the hungry. We've had provision for those that didn't have food on the table and that then provision came. We've had provision of DIY where people um, just throw up their hands and need things done and uh, more practical people have come in and helped them. And these have delighted my heart. I still remember the time uh, when a load, and I wasn't including this, which I always like, that uh, a load of other people took out a few days and cleared a shed load of hardcore uh, from someone's back garden. How that hardcore got there, I've got no idea. But they spent days clearing this hardcore and taking it up the dump and making what was quite an inhospitable garden into something a lot more welcoming. And that sharing of love and compassion is hard work. And it thrills me. But I didn't want this morning just to give you guys another pat on the back. One of my favourite Christian writers and speakers is a guy called Shane Clayball. Now, he's, uh, um, he gets into hot water every now and again for uh, whether it's heresy or theological inaccuracy. Um, I'm not sure which. But he does a really good job of exciting this desire for proper love in the community, not a 
just a a facade of love, an appearance of love, where we come into church and go, uh, peace be with you, uh, Brother Alistair. Like, that means anything at all. So let me read to you. Um, basically, the sermon could have been just uh, little excerpts from his books, because um, I really, I read them and go, oh, that's what church should be like. So um, let me read this. It says this. A family very dear to our hearts um, own a mini-mart across the street from our house. Over the years, we have become inseparable. Their kids come over for homework to do our theatre camp and to beat us at Uno. If you've been to River Camp, you'll know all about Uno, um, though they cheat sometimes. We help um, have their house, and they helped us teach us Spanish. Oftentimes, they need transportation to restock the store or pick up the kids, and we found that we could insure them um, under our policy. So we share cars and they never take our money for groceries. We are not good Samaritans, nor are we our efficient non-profit provider. We are a family with them and money has lost its relevance. You just breathe that in for a moment. Go, oh, doesn't that sound good? Not long ago, we had to take our car into the mechanic after it was being repaired and it was returned without a bill. When I asked about it, our mechanic told me we were taking care of a family he cared deeply for, so the repairs were a gift to us, since we all have to take care of each other. It's funny how money loses its power. As one of the early Christians said, starve mammon with your love. I hope mammon goes hungry around here. No wonder it is easier to fit a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus said that to the rich ruler. That doesn't mean rich people are excluded or not welcome. It means that it's nearly impossible for them to catch the vision of an interdependent community, dependent on God and one another. Rich folks, while they may be spiritually starving for God and community, still believe the illusion that they are self-sufficient, autonomous individuals, and that belief is incompatible with the gospel that says wherever two or more are gathered, God is among us. And yet nothing is impossible. As the text in Mark 10 says, rocks cry out, donkeys can talk, dead people can come to life, and rich people can release their riches and enter the kingdom of God. One of the communities I have bumped into is a, is a bunch of middle-aged families in the suburbs who have decided to do a little experiment in community. They started sharing garden tools and lawnmowers. They would do laundry together and share machines. They found it was more fun to do their laundry together, spending time with each other while they waited, which poor folks have known for a long time. Before long, they had a community garden and set up a cooperative childcare. A few of them even moved, to get, moved in together. It felt so natural. Eventually, they made the front page of the newspaper. And one of the folks who'd started it said to me, isn't that weird? What we are doing isn't front page news. It, it just seemed to make sense. There are so many experiments in community living and hospitality in different and economic and social contexts that the best I can do is give you glimpses of them. There is one more beautiful story I cannot help but mention. A married couple who are unable to have children happened to meet a woman who had found herself six months pregnant and homeless. So they invited her into her home. It proved to be such a beautiful experience that they decided to continue living together to help raise the new baby girl while the mother pursued her dream of going back to school to become a nurse. They have been living together for over a decade now. They are a family and the baby is now a teenager and the mum and nurse. A heart-wrenching twist to the story is that the wife of the married couple is now very ill with multiple sclerosis. 
but now the nurse living in her home is caring for her, just as she cared for the nurse. This is the divine gift of mystical providence and radical independence, which I would like to shorten to the word love. But I haven't finished yet because I found another one. And it was, it was working out when to stop. And I may pass that bark, but I don't care. In its worship of all things new and hip, U.S. culture has sacrificed relationship with the elderly and infirm. Most of the church has done exactly the same, putting older people into nursing homes and in retirement centres. Um, I'm sensitive to the fact that quite a few, uh, there are some here that are, are struggling uh, with caring for those of dementia and, and certainly don't want to um, sort of put any extra pressure on them. But I really enjoyed these uh, few stories. One community, if we have counted, has taken another path. They take care of people from the cradle to the grave. One time I visited this community. One of its elderly folks was dying. His grandson had taken time off work for a few months to care for him and push him around the community in his wheelchair. His grandma still made appearances at the community business where he took his time putting together easy pieces for its manufacturing process and shared his time-tested wisdom with everyone around. At other other times, when members were nearing death, everybody in the community would gather outside their window to sing them songs. Another couple of our friends, Darren and Megan, um, grew to love an uh, an elderly lady named Gwyn, whom they had met in the projects of Omaha. I think projects is kind of like a housing estate. Um, Gwyn was afflicted with Alzheimer's, had no friends or family to care for her. As the government began to tear down affordable housing, Darren and Megan were faced with a difficult question. What is going to happen to Gwyn? As they prayed and struggled, they tried everything they could think of to help Gwyn live independently for as long as possible as she wished. It started out with simple things, such as having meals together and doing her laundry while they talked. It progressed to helping her bathe at home, setting up daily medication for her, taking her to appointments, and managing her financial affairs. After a lot of work, it became clear that it was no longer the best option for Gwyn to live on her own. Darren and Megan took part in the tough decision to help her move from independent living to a country nursing home. As Megan cleared out Gwyn's apartment, she came across an old uh, weathered 3 by 5 card that read, Don't put me in a nursing home. Signed in small print, Guinevere G. Collins. Darren and Megan wrestled with what it meant to be family to Gwyn, who had no kids and never married. Eventually, they became the answer to their own prayers, adopting Gwyn. Now they have lived together for more than four years. It isn't always easy. Gwyn's sickness has gotten worse. She's a wild and eccentric old diva. She used to be an aspiring, aspiring actress. So every moment is an adventure as she tries to remember where she is. Every hour she asks, is this the Alps? Are we in England? And sometimes Darren and Megs will let her choose her adventure for the day or the hour. They have helped her find ways to continue to paint and make art. And she makes them smile as she tells jokes and looks for her boyfriends and does her little booty shake boogie when she gets excited. A little while back, Darren and Megs had a child. And now um, Gwyn comes to life as she holds little justice. Um, Darren and Megan and Justice will help Gwyn make the transition from this world with a smile on her face and a family around her. So, as we talk about love, I don't want our past experiences 
to limit that. I don't want your past experiences of church to limit that, of what you know known other Christians to do to limit that. I don't want this thing I've seen in the past, that's what love looks like. Because it means something new today. And I think that there's no limit to this love. When Peter and Paul talk about more and more, the idea is we become more invested and it becomes more costly rather than something that we can move to the fringe or do on a Sunday morning and then leave it at that. I think there is an opportunity for us to dream up new ways to love each other. In Bubush, you have a lot of opportunity to love the people that are struggling. People in other churches in this town have to come to Bubush because that's often where the needy people are. But we're in the middle of that. And that was always the intention for this church, was to help the people out there. We go through peaks and troughs of being able to do that. But it is a good thing. And every time we chase a deeper love, we choose something that is more costly rather than less, that is more hard work, I think God smiles. I think other people are comforted and they see that another world is possible. And I think we enjoy a happiness that other activities just don't bring. I think we were made to serve each other. And I think we try and get out of that in a hundred different ways. But I think it fulfills our destiny when we do that. So, I don't even know who this guy is, but (laughs) he's got this wall chart and it says, is Barack Obama the Antichrist? And I've sat through talks like this where they start doing word searches and counting the letters and sort of doing uh, charts of the end times and which chapter in Revelation the next president sits under. So I've heard like President Trump be both the Antichrist and sort of God's salvation. Um, And uh, so I'm not even sure what is going on about half the time. You can see um, tribulation at the back um, and uh, there's probably a rapture in there and uh, the sort of the millennium and uh, people just look at the book of Revelation and, and have it all sort of mapped out. So as a Christian leader, I'm often a lightning rod uh, for all sorts of divergent Christian thinking. Well, most people um, show little real interest in theology. You know, they'll, they'll repeat sort of the odd Greek word from me or something, but they just want to live their lives and they don't think that the difference between sanctification and justification has real any importance for their daily lives. Uh, but there are a chosen few out there who have carved little niches Um, of Christianity for themselves. I remember uh, um, early on as a preacher, I think it was sort of a Christmas time, uh, this guy came up to me after I'd spoken um, and he came up to me and he said, you need to know this. And I was like, okay, I'm I'm a young guy, I want to know more. What new information are you giving me? How, what way are you going to bless me? Am I going to uh, uh, be able to use that in the future? So he said, you know the gold that the Magi bought Jesus in the infancy narrative? So I was like, yes. 
He goes, that gold was so much that Jesus and his folks didn't have to work a day because it funded them for the rest of their lives. I was like, what? He was like, yeah, no, Jesus was really rich. You know, all these Christians that talk about blessed are the poor, he goes, no, Jesus was fabulously rich and this Magi gold, he sort of bankrolled him for the rest of his life. And he conveniently ignored that bit in scripture that says it's the women around Jesus that funded him. And I still occasionally come across these people. We had, um, they're not with us for the time, but um, they now and again sort of crop up in Buckham Park and, and, and come and talk to us. And, and their conspiracy theories are elaborate and make your head spin. Um, there's another guy that I know uh, in Bewbush who is convinced. And so you want to talk to him about Jesus, and he quickly moves on to Prince Charles, and he's obviously got it in for poor Prince Charles. Uh, but he's, Prince Charles is some sort of antichrist, and he's connected with the Rothschilds, and that there's whole sort of uh, uh, conspiracy going on that's controlling everyone's lives. And... Um, I just see it again and again. And, and so I remember a few years ago, someone coming up to me and, and I was talking uh, about sort of God's word and sort of going through a couple of passages on that. And uh, he came up to me and, and said, it is vitally important that you distinguish between the words rima and logos. Both of these are Greek words for words in scripture and they're both used um, in, in, in the Bible. And he said, you need to do a whole series, perhaps years, about how people need to know the difference between rima and logos and how this is critical for their faith. Well, today's passage sort of kicks that into touch and punches it in the gut. Because both words, yes, can be translated into the English word for word. But today, in Peter's uh, text, um, the word rima is used for everything. Well, uh, there are the people with wall charts that would have you think otherwise. The word rima is suddenly used non-technically. And all the people with their wall charts and their little niche websites and their little arguments that you just go round and round every time you come in, um, it kind of uh, uh, just bulldozes over that. Just get over yourself um, is uh, what comes out of Peter today. And so Peter tells us, about Rima, this word of God. And he says, he talks about it being the action of God speaking and the content, and, and people would divide the two. And today, just Peter says, just get over it. God speaks, and it is a beautiful, helpful thing. In this context, Peter is talking about God's word being the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know that thing we celebrated a few weeks ago that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again? And that is what Peter's talking about. He goes, this is the word of God. This is what God has spoken and has got written down and that we keep going on about again and again and singing about and preaching about and gossiping about. Peter considers people. He considers their lives, their legacies. He considers the seed of humanity. And he goes, they're transitory. They come and go. All the things that you're working really hard at, they only last a moment. I always find it sobering 
that each of us, every single person in this room, all that we've done together and on our own, it will probably be forgotten in 100 years. Even important people and all the legacies they bring, it will get neglected and it will get superseded. Everything you get upset about, worked up about, everything you dream of, all these things, they are transitory. They move on. They come and go. But God's word, this story of the gospel, is imperishable, it endures, it is living and forever. Our faith can easily be preoccupied with feelings and experiences. We can measure our faith by all sorts of different ideas and theories. And we can have favourite teachings that we concentrate on. And perhaps you love the idea of a rapture and a millennium and I've just walked all over you and I'm sorry if I've upset you. But our salvation doesn't rest on these little pet things, on all the um, everyday stuff that we fill our minds with. God has said the only thing that is endures is his word and his word about Jesus of Nazareth. If you've got a Bible, turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. says this in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. In my prayers at all times, I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have now been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have a harvest among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And he says this, very famous Verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For, it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Friends, our arguments and theologies may be incomplete. Our lives may be inadequate. We may fall short of the love that we read about and that we aspire to. But this does not stop the good news of Jesus. Because God's word abides and it moves on. Sometimes I fear church structures get in the way or contaminate our faith. Sometimes 
And I'm sorry if this is upsetting. Sometimes after a Sunday meeting, I fall down into our sofa and wonder, is that it? Why is church so hard? And is that the sum total of faith? A few songs on a Sunday morning and a preach where people struggled to stay awake and were just glad that it was over. Is that it? In our weak moments, and that's often Sunday afternoon for me, in our weak moments, other faiths and other positions and other philosophies can look more popular. It'd be a lot easier to go and support Brighton and Hove Albion, I think, especially as they've uh, stayed up uh, in the Premiership. And they sound more reasonable. You know, there's more people doing that. And uh, you can find yourselves in in greater comfort. But they are all man-made. And they will all fail. Only the gospel will endure. Let me read uh, something else. In 1650, in, the, uh, uh, in England, a judge sentenced a young man to six months in jail in Derby, in England, on charges of blasphemy. The youth had claimed that Christ the Saviour had taken away his sin, and in Christ there was no sin. Fantastic, what sort of judge is that? Um, anyway, before he was sentenced, George Fox told Judge Bennett to tremble in the fear of God. Professing Christ was not enough, everyone must follow him. At that, the judge laughed. He knew about the meetings of George Fox and his followers. People sometimes shook with emotion. So he told Fox, you folks are the tremblers, you are the Quakers. Quaker was a derisive nickname and it stuck, just like Christian. At Antioch, 1,600 years earlier, those people to whom their name was applied referred to themselves as the children of light or the publishers of the truth, the people of God... um, or simply friends, following the words of Jesus. You are my friends if, if you do what I command. Later, when dissent from the Church of England was made legal, Quakers called themselves the Society of Friends, and that is what they are called today. Although in many parts of the world, Friends Church is the name. Friends are scattered throughout the world, and about half of them are non-European. George Fox was weary of formal religion. The English, English church had been Roman, Anglican, Presbyterian and independent, but always under state control. And this bothered George Fox. It seemed as if the church had given up spirituality in exchange for protection. The church had become a kind of public service managed by state-appointed officials. And Fox called them all priests, whether Catholic or Protestant. The liturgy may vary, the system never. The church had become apostate, but Christ was not a commodity to be bought and sold. Second-hand answers left Fox empty. It wasn't enough to read about spirit-led people in the book of Acts. Irrelevant advice in his spiritual search frustrated him further. Love the advice this guy gets. Try tobacco, said one minister. Imagine getting that advice. I'm feeling dead inside and uh, I just need a spiritual awakening and go uh, uh, have a fag. Another said, sing psalms. You can, okay, slightly more spiritual. Get married. What a great basis for marriage. I'm feeling empty inside. Then you need to find a woman. And she will find you things to do. (laughs) Get married. 
advised another. Bloodletting may help. So this is a bit of an old, um, old scientific approach. So George Fox tried spiritual advisors and asked them theological questions until they were all uncomfortable. All were second-hand. Then one day he heard a voice which said to him, there is one, even Christ Jesus, who can speak to your condition. Christ was revealed to him in an immediate experience. Theory became reality. And you're like, oh, that sounds good. People sensed the power of God when Fox preached. Sometimes he would speak after the minister had finished. Sometimes he preached outside the church. People argued with him. One hit him over the head with a brass-bound Bible, upset because the brash George Fox knew the Bible so well. One day, George Fox climbed Pendle Hill in the north of England. It's still a place where the wind sweeps grey mists across grassy slopes and rocky crags. At the top of Pendle Hill, George Fox had a vision of a people to be gathered to the Lord. He saw Christ gathering people into victory over Satan. The need was to proclaim Christ who liberates people from the power of sin in their lives. And Fox began preaching in the open air to thousands. Christ has been too long blocked Uh, locked up in the mass or the book, he said. Let him be your prophet, priest and king. Obey him. This appealed to the workers of the North West England. A band of young men and women became the evangelists of the Quaker Society. Known as the Valiant Sixty, they fanned out across England and wherever ships would take them. Many seekers joined the movement, as well as those who had previously belonged to denominations. Three years after the Pendle Hill visions, there were 50 thousand Quakers and before the end of the 17th century double that number when Peter talks about the word of God enduring he doesn't mean Elam Bubush as a structure he doesn't mean the King James version of the Bible he doesn't mean the Church of England he doesn't mean the barn church that we're hopefully going to move into he means the gospel of God that brings liberation that causes people to have their lives set free who have suddenly a hope for today tomorrow and the future and causes them to shed guilt and shame and work in a way of love that changes everything And these are good words to take in. Please bow your heads. God, I thank you for these words of Peter. God, I thank you for his call for us to go deeper into love. God, I pray that we would be better at it. God, I pray that we will not uh, be satisfied with a a half-hearted attempt, or merely what other people get up to. God, I pray that we would press into this and be really, really good at loving each other. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it endures and is forever. Lord God, I thank you that it rescues lives, liberates people, and brings salvation. Lord God, I thank you um, that while... Uh, cities may come and go while uh, politics may rise and fall that your word abides and Lord God I pray that this would make us feel very safe and very brave and all God's people said amen amen